Chapter 16 of the Story of a Common Soldier of Army Life in the Civil War, 1861-1865. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sue Anderson. The Story of a Common Soldier of Army Life in the Civil War, 1861-1865, by Leander Stilwell. Chapter 16, Duval's Bluff, the Clarendon Expedition, June and July, 1864. On June 20th, we left Huntersville on the cars and went to Hicks Station, herein before mentioned, and there went into camp. In making this move, we left Little Rock for the last time, and from that day I have never seen the old town again. But our stay at Hicks Station was brief. Marching orders came on June 24th, and on the next day we left on the cars and went to Duval's Bluff, and on reaching there filed on board the steamer Kentucky and started down White River, accompanied by several other boats also loaded with troops, all under the command of General E. A. Carr. The object and purpose of this expedition was soon noised around among the men. The daring and enterprising Confederate General Shelby had, on June 24th, turned up at Clarendon on White River, not far below Duval's Bluff, and here, with the aid of his artillery, had surprised and captured one of our so-called tin-clad gunboats, and had established a blockade on the river. As all our supplies came by way of that stream, it was necessary to drive Shelby away at once, hence our movement. We arrived at Clarendon on the morning of the 26th. Some of our gunboats were with us in advance, and as soon as they came within range of the town began shelling it, and the woods beyond. The cannonade elicited no reply, and it was soon ascertained that the enemy had fallen back from the river. The transports thereupon landed, the men marched on shore, formed in line of battle, and advanced. The Confederates were found in force about two miles northeast of town, and some lively skirmishing and artillery practice began. But our regiment was stationed in the supporting line, darn it, and didn't get to pull a trigger. Cannon shot went over our heads now and then, but hurt nobody. While the racket was going on, we were standing in line of battle on the hither side of an extensive cotton field, and there was a big, tall cottonwood tree standing about a quarter of a mile in our front on the side of the road. I was looking in that direction when suddenly, as if by magic, a big forked branch of this tree quietly took leave of the trunk, as if it didn't know how it happened. Before it struck the ground, the shot from one of Shelby's guns that had done this pruning went screaming over our heads. It sounded just real good, like old times, with an effect somehow like a powerful tonic. But the affair didn't last long. Shelby had no stomach for fighting infantry well supplied with artillery, and he soon fell back and rapidly retreated in a northerly direction, leaving two pieces of his artillery in our possession. When the Confederates retired, we followed promptly and vigorously, but, of course, the infantry couldn't overhaul them, and neither could our cavalry bring them to a determined stand. Our route was largely through a low, swampy country, over a corduroy road. In many places there were large gaps in the corduroy, where the logs had rotted and disappeared, 
and the road was covered with green and slimy water about knee-deep. On encountering the first of these breaks, we took off our shoes and socks, tied them to the ends of the barrels of our muskets, rolled up our trousers, and waded in. As such places were numerous, it was not worth while to resume our footgear, so we just trudged on barefooted. But the weather was warm, and it made no difference, and the boys would splash through the mud and water in great good humor, laughing and joking as they went. We followed hard after Shelby until the evening of the 27th, and it being impossible to catch up with him, we started back to Clarendon on the morning of the 28th. In the matter of rations, I reckon somebody had blundered when we started in pursuit of Shelby. We had left Clarendon with only a meager supply in our haversacks, and no provision train was with the command. So at the time we took the back track, we were out of anything to eat. The country bordering on our route was wild and thinly settled, and what people lived there were manifestly quite poor. Hence there was very little in the shape of anything to eat that we could forage. On the first day of our return march, our commissary sergeant, Bonfrey, did manage to capture and kill a gaunt, lean, old Arkansas steer, and it was divided up among the men with almost as much nicety and exactness as if it was a wedding cake with a prized diamond ring in it. And we hadn't any salt to go with it, but in lieu of that used gunpowder, which was a sort of substitute. With that exception, and a piece of hardtack to be presently mentioned, my bill of fare on the return march until we reached Clarendon, consisted in the main of a green, knotty apple and some sassafras buds. About the middle of the afternoon on the second day, the regiment made a temporary halt for some purpose, and we were sitting or lying down along the roadside. There was a bunch of our cavalry on their horses in column off the road a short distance, also at a halt, and I saw one of them munching a hardtack I slipped out of ranks and approached the fellow, and when close to him said, "'Partner, won't you give me a hardtack?' He looked at me a second or two without saying anything, and I was fearful that my appeal was going to be denied. But the look of ravenous hunger in my eyes probably gained the case, for at last he reached his hand into his haversack and handed me a tack, one of the big kind about four or five inches square. I was barely in time, for right then the cavalry moved on. I thrust the tack into my shirt bosom, gave a quick, furtive glance toward the company to see if anyone had observed me, and then started to get behind a big tree where the precious morsel could be devoured without risk of detection. But John Barton had been watching and was upon me before I could hide. "'Hold on, Stillwell,' said he. That don't go. I divided with you as long as I had a crumb. That's so, John, I replied, heaving a mournful sigh. Here. And breaking the hardtack in two, I gave him a fair half, and standing behind the tree, we promptly gobbled down our respective portions. We arrived at Clarendon on the evening of the 29th, having marched in going and returning about seventy miles. Here everybody got a square meal, which was heartily appreciated. As bearing on the above-mentioned incident about the hardtack, it will be said here, basing my remarks on my experience in the Army and elsewhere, that I think there is nothing that will reduce human beings so much 
to the level of the brute creation as intense gnawing hunger. All the selfishness there is in a man will then come to the surface, and to satisfy the well-nigh intolerable craving for something to eat, he will go back on his best friend. I could cite several instances in support of this statement that have come under my observation, but it is unnecessary. Soon after reaching Clarendon, as above stated, fires burst forth, apparently simultaneously, all over the town, and soon every building was in ashes. It was a small place, and its population at the beginning of the war probably did not exceed 300. At this time the town had been abandoned by the residents, and so far as I know the houses were all vacant. The buildings were small frame or log structures, composed of cypress and pine lumber or logs, roofed with shingles and highly combustible, and they made an exceedingly hot fire. I do not know the cause of the burning of the town. The soldiers were tired, mad, and out of sorts generally, and they may have fired it on their own motion. But it is more likely that it was done by order of the military authorities. The empty houses afforded excellent cover, whereby the Confederates could slip up to the river bank and annoy our gunboats, even to the extent of capturing one, as they had done quite recently. So, as a military measure, the burning of the town was fully justified. We left Clarendon on the evening of the 29th, on the steamer Lily Martin, arrived at Duval's Bluff some time during the night, debarked from the boat next morning, and went into camp near the river, where we enjoyed for a time an agreeable rest. Before taking final leave of the Clarendon expedition, I will, in the interest of the truth of history, indulge in a little criticism of the gallant and distinguished officer who was the Confederate commander in this affair. All who are conversant with the military career of General J. O. Shelby will readily concede that he was a brave, skillful, and energetic cavalry commander. He kept us in hot water almost continuously in the Trans-Mississippi Department and made us a world of trouble. But I feel constrained to remark that in reporting his military operations, he was sometimes a most monumental, well, I'll scratch out the short and ugly word I have written and substitute artist and let it go at that. I have just been reading his reports of this Clarendon episode as they appear on pages 1050 to 1053, serial number 61, official records of the War of the Rebellion, and as he describes it, it is difficult to recognize it as being the same affair we took part in in June 1864. In the first place, he says that the loss of the Federals can safely be put down at 250 killed and wounded, and that 30 will cover his own. On the other hand, our commander, General Carr, says the Confederate loss killed, wounded, and captured was about 74 and gives ours as one killed and sixteen wounded, page 1047. And from what I personally saw, I have no doubt that General Carr's statements are correct. Shelby further asserts that three times he drove us back to the river, and that later, while on his retreat, he charged us and drove them, us, back three miles in confusion. Now, those statements are 
pure moonshine. I was there, and while, as previously stated, was not on the firing line, was nevertheless in a position either to see or to hear everything of any material consequence that transpired. The force on each side was comparatively small, the field of active operations was limited, and it was not difficult for even a common soldier to have an intelligent idea of what was going on. And for my part, with the natural curiosity of a boy, I was constantly on the alert to see or hear everything that was being done in the shape of fighting. In the operations near the town we were not driven back to the river, nor towards it, on any occasion. On his retreat, Shelby did make one or two feeble stands, the object being merely to delay us until his main body could get well out of the way, and when that was accomplished, his rear guard galloped after them as fast as they could. That it was mainly a race with him to get away is evident from a statement in his report, in which he says he was then, June 30th, resting his tired and terribly jaded horses. But in telling of his exploits, he says nothing about losing two pieces of his artillery. The saying of Bonaparte's, false as a war bulletin, has passed into a proverb, and this bulletin of General Shelby's is no exception. End of chapter 16